We're in the book of Revelation. If you'll uh, turn with me to chapter 2, our key to interpretation is going to be the same as in every other place in the Bible, which is the Bible is its own interpreter. We'll go to um, the Bible to interpret these things. We're told, well, it's called the Revelation, which is actually in Greek the Apocalypto, the Apocalypse, which means the unveiling of Jesus Christ. So this is supposed to be something being revealed, not hidden by symbols and things. And it says that his servants will be able to understand. So we're called to be his servants. And therefore, we should be able to have understanding. And so let's pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit as we worship now by going to his word. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Jesus, we thank you for your revelation. And we thank you for sending this the sword that comes out of your mouth, the word of God, which is the spirit. So the spirit speaks to the churches and that we pray that we have an ear to be able to hear what the spirit says to the churches. So be with us now as we attempt to humble ourselves and we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you will help us to hear and that you will change us. And we know that your word will accomplish its purposes. We pray that even if there are those who, who hear this today who are not saved, that they would be converted and that you would continue to, to give us more faith and make us more like Christ as we submit ourselves under your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it's Revelation chapter 2. We're in the letter... We're in the seven letters to the seven churches. The number seven, which you know, biblically represents completion and, and even rest. The seventh day, the Lord completed his work of creation. He rested on the seventh day. And so the letter to the seven churches represent uh, letters to the church, all the churches. And then we'll see here, too, it also says, He who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. So that all the churches are to hear this word. And as the book of Revelation went around, um, all seven letters are contained in this book. And so they would all have read each other's letters. But they, each letter has a particular message to a particular church. And one of the lessons that we see here is that um, we saw last time in chapter 1 that Jesus is in the middle of this, all his churches. And we are the lights. We are the candlesticks. But Jesus is at the center. He's at the center of everything. And at the center of everything is the throne of God. And what he uses here on earth to affect God's work and purposes is the church. So it is vitally important to the work of God um, that we remain faithful to him. But God is in control of these things. And it is our job to listen to what the Spirit says and to humble ourselves beneath that Spirit. So... The second letter is to the church in Smyrna. So let's read together uh, verses 8 through 11 of, of Revelation chapter 2. So let's pray first. Again, Father, thank you for your word. Give us illumination. Help us to see Jesus and to see what, what we might do to serve him better. And this we pray in his only name. Amen. The word of the Lord. <clears throat> and to the angel of the church in Smyrna write... The words of the first and the last, who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. 
he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The word of the Lord. So, first of all, Smyrna is in Turkey, and it's in modern-day Izmir, Turkey. Which Have you been to Izmir? Did y'all go to Izmir, Turkey? Izmir, Turkey. Um, it's the third largest city today in Turkey. It's 50 miles north of Ephesus. So the last letter was to Ephesus, 50 miles up. Um, the next church gets this letter. And as we'll see that each of the seven churches, seven letters to seven churches, follow the same format. And so we'll see what we can learn from them um, in this letter. So part of the format is there's an opening that takes one of the descriptors. There's a, in chapter one, there's a description of Jesus Christ and all these different characteristics. And at each, the beginning of each one of the seven letters, they take a part of that description and apply it to the letter of each of the churches. So in the opening here in verse eight is to the angel, which we said earlier is actually the Greek word messenger. And so we believe that this is actually to the, the elders or the elder or the pastor in a particular church that's given to him. And then he's supposed to pronounce the word to the people. The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. So this is the particular descriptions, first and last. Uh, he was before all things and he is the end of all things. He is the alpha, the omega. He is the author and finisher of our faith. And he is the one who died and came to life. And then if we look at the closing in verse 11, he who has near him hear what the spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we see two main themes that we're going to be looking at, and that is conquering and death. And it's more literally being victorious and the reward of life. So we have to think, okay, think being victorious over what? And what is the second death? So we're going to dig into God's word and see this. So in verse 9, it starts off, he says, I know your tribulation. So it's interesting sometimes to see what he says and compare it to the other churches. So... If you just look at what he says, he says, I know, and then he says something to each of the churches. So if you can keep up here to Ephesus in 2.2, he says, I know your works and your toil and your patient endurance, and he goes on. And in this particular case, he says in, verse, uh, two, in chapter 2.9, I know your tribulation and your poverty and the slander. And then we get to the church at Pergamum, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And then in verse 19, I know your works, your love, your faith, and your service, your patient endurance. And in the chapter 3, verse 1, I know your works. And chapter 3, verse 8, I know your works. Chapter 3, verse 15, I know your works. And so here, I know your tribulation. Now that's comforting. I know your tribulation. And I know your poverty, though you're rich. And I know the slander of those who say they're Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So the first thing that we see is not only is Jesus at the center of his church, and by the Spirit we're illumined and we hear his word, but that he does know us. And the fact that what we're going to see about Smyrna is a lot of what's said here is particular to people who lived in the city of Smyrna. So if he were to speak to the people who live here in this city, he would have particular things to say to us too because he knows us intimately. 
And so we had to be aware of this. God is not just some God that's up there dictating things from on far. He doesn't just drop a Bible here and want us to figure it out. He is here applying things directly to us, directly to you, if we have ear and ear to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is one of the two churches of this group of seven, of only two, who don't have anything negative said about them. So the Spirit is not pointing out an error or a problem with the church at Smyrna. And yet they're going through tribulation and they're going through poverty and they're being, being literally the word for slandered in the Greek is blasphemed. So one of the things that we can see here is that the wealth and health preachers are wrong that in fact this church in Smyrna is expressly experiencing these things because of their faith. They're living in a city that is, has great opulence and yet they're experiencing tribulation. But it's not because they lack anything and they're impoverished but it's not because they're being punished because of something. And they're also being blasphemed by a false religion but it's not because they're lacking something. It is because, just as Job experienced, consider my servant Job. This is one of my churches. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know you're being slandered. And you're going to go through harder things. But it has purpose. And it has meaning. It is not, and it is not outside of the will of God. So we're going to look at what this is and, and see many ways that it can actually apply to us. Um, as well because today Christians are all over the world being persecuted and killed for their faith. So we have to say well how many would attend church if it was life threatening? And maybe we've been through that a little bit. You know, if it's life threatening. Now the virus things are you know, a little different in some ways, some ways similar. But, you know, do you, do you go to church? Do you become a believer? Do you convert to Jesus Christ? If you know that you'll be kicked out of your family, um, you won't be able to participate in society much, um, you may not be able to work, you will be ostracized, you may even be put in prison, as many in China are, and you may be put to death, as many in many parts of the world are today, being killed because of the name of Christ. It's very easy to preach a sermon about, look how hard it is for us to get up, to go to church, and, you know, one of the problems we have is, you know, the, the soft, uh, was it the soft curse of opulence, you know, the soft curse of, bless, of, of riches that we have here. Um, if we desire to have our faith strengthened, then the prayers that we, we might need to pray are, please send us tribulation and poverty and cause people to blaspheme us. But that is not the way we want to pray. And that's not what God would have us to pray. What God would have us to pray is, oh Lord, increase my faith. Oh Lord, help me to lean more strongly on you. Don't be surprised when trials happen because that often is the way that God grows his church. Don't consider it a strange thing. And so we see here as the example in Smyrna, this church is not given a hard time about anything. Um, but they're going through hard things. But God is with them. Jesus Christ cares about his church. So it is actually an encouraging word from the Spirit 
to see these things. So look at verse 9 again. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So you have to keep in mind that Smyrna was really a beautiful city. It was a very wealthy city. They had a slogan, um, first city of Asia in beauty and size. Now, when I lived in Manning, I could say, Manning, South Carolina, I'd say, you know, when you're coming into town, there's a sign they have, matchless for beauty and hospitality. So when somebody was inhospitable to you, you'd immediately think about that sign and go, you know, about this thing. you know, because it's just what you saw when you come in. So all the Christians in Smyrna would have seen first city of Asia in beauty and in size. And there's wealth there. And yet for some reason, these Christians are in poverty. And the Spirit is saying to them, I know your poverty, but you are rich. So that the Spirit is not seeing things the way that the world is seeing them. Don't judge yourselves by worldly standards. Spiritual wealth and worldly wealth are not related. Jesus said it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to get into heaven. And so the disciples said, then who can be saved? Because in their mind, it's kind of the opposite of what we have going on in our culture. You know, the rich are evil. Uh, in their culture, the rich were obviously blessed by God or they wouldn't be rich. They're going to heaven. What about the poor people? I hope maybe one day we'll be able to get into heaven too. And, and he's like, nah, it's easier for a rich man. To, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Because he has great, this is where his love is. He has great wealth in these things. He just, they just experienced a person that had, had been like that. And then Jesus answers them. I mean, they say, well, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, with man, it is impossible. And now you can stop right there because that's true. But with God, all things are possible. And I just believe when he said it, he said it with a smile on his face. <laughs> man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Even that guy you saw that just left that went away sad because he had great riches, even he can be saved. And so don't look at wealth as being an indication of the blessing of God over somebody's behavior. And you look at this word, it's slander, this blasphemy, and it's mostly because of this that the Christians in Smyrna were experiencing these hardships. Um, and then where did, this, where did this slander come from? And we see that it was from the Jews that were there, and these are non-believing Jews, so keep this in mind. Jesus, Jewish. Paul, Jewish, Peter, Jewish, John, Jewish. All the, all the apostles are all Jewish. This isn't where you should say Jews are bad and Gentiles good. There are none who are good, no, not one, but God is working through his people. And then what we need to think about is who are the people of God? Who are the called of God? Who are the elect? Who are the people of God? Because there is a current uh, cultural, political, religious doctrine that says that we have to support Israel, the nation, the political nation of Israel today, or else we're opposed to God. So you have to be careful of that. I mean, this has nothing to do with whether we should support Israel or not, okay? That has to do with, uh, you know, we should be loving all of our, our neighbors and our enemies as well and figuring that out. I just noticed one of the things is that 
you know, the world identifies evil and that means it can, anything is justified against it. If something is identified as evil, anything to eradicate it is allowed. But Jesus turns it around and says, love your enemies. So the church isn't enabled to get into that. There is evil. But you've got to figure out how do you love your enemies. It doesn't mean you join in with them. It doesn't mean those things. It means that you pray for them and you try your best to want what is best for them and that we do not have the authority to do evil so that we can try to wipe out evil. We are called that everything that we do is limited and enabled by the love of Christ. So as we look at the nation of Israel, I am simply talking about those who want to equate that with the chosen people of God. Because what we're going to see here is the Jews that are dealing with the Christian church in Smyrna are, as the Spirit is saying, actually blaspheming and they are a synagogue of Satan because they are attacking and persecuting Christ's people. And so we're going to look at this but I do not want you to hear any anti-Semitic things. This is simply having to do with who is the church? Who are the people of God? Because Jesus told the unbelieving Jews that were attacking him in the church that they didn't know him because they, didn't know the, they don't know the Father. And the reason that they don't know, he says, is because Satan is their father. So if you turn to John chapter 8, so the Gospel of John, And beginning in verse 30, Jesus is, is preaching. And as in verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you are able, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing what your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. 
And this, these were Jewish people who were not of spiritual Israel that did not have faith in the one true God. It also all applies to Gentiles, people who are not of Jewish descent, who do not believe in the one true God. And you can tell if they believe in the one true God by they, do they believe Jesus? Are they followers of Christ? And then if we go to Acts chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. So Acts chapter 14, verse 1. Paul and, and Barnabas are going around sharing the gospel. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews, now this is what you have to do. There's, a, there's Jews, there's believing Jews and unbelieving Jews. There's a separation between um, these groups. The unbelieving Jews stood up stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord who bore witness to the word of grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So you see this thing happening early on, and now in Smyrna, it's even become worse. Because now this Jewish contingency of non-believers are telling the pagan government that these people are, going, are causing trouble and stirring up problems. And what happens is, well, let me tell you a little bit more about the, the city of Smyrna. Because in verse in Revelation 2.10, it says, the devil's about to throw some of you into prison. Now, how does the devil do that? How does the devil throw people into prison? And it, what he does is Satan has tools. Satan has people that he uses to do his bidding. And so there are going to be people that Satan has um, stirred up he is this power behind that we're going to see as we continue in Revelation to see how the spiritual warfare is taking place in the areas that we don't see, that it's actually Satan who is going to be throwing people into prison. And so how does he do it? How does he do it? And in this sense, this time he's using pagan governments and a false religion. And in Smyrna, they worshipped government. They had buildings that looked like temples and shrines. And there was one that had a, 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 one that had a, a slogan over the top of it, and it said, government is God. <laughs> government is God. And we'd look at that today, and we'd go, oh, my goodness. But, you know, back then, it wasn't so outlandish. To the Christians, they're like, that's awful. <laughs> it's terrible. And you have to say, Caesar is Lord. And offer a pinch of incense in worship of him. And you're like, nobody would ever make you do that. It's like, well, in Smyrna you did because you couldn't be in the trade guilds. You couldn't go to work. You couldn't, you couldn't really even buy things in the marketplace often. If you were one of those people who refused to acknowledge that the government is God or refused to acknowledge that Satan is Lord, I mean that, that Caesar is Lord, and that you would think, well, what about the Jewish people, the non-believing Jewish people? Or apparently they didn't have too much of a problem with kind of tipping the hat toward that. You know, I, I'll just make things easy. You know, I don't mind. Put 
government is guide. They are very helpful and will help you, you know, we'll participate in this too. And then the incense that had to be, you know, we don't really believe in this, but just to help everything go smoothly, we'll do, we'll do this. That's liberal religion. It is religion that becomes like the world in order to get along with the world so that things can just go a little more smoothly. But then here come the Christians who won't do that, don't think they're a part of us, and so what they do is they actually start lies about the Christians. It's not as if there was enough truth that they could just tell, but they start to blaspheme and saying they're doing really bad things. And they stir the government, they stir the city up against them so that if you were a Christian, you now are kicked out of your jobs. I think they kicked them off Facebook and Twitter back then too. And somebody else owned it. And they were just, you were out. And that's why you're impoverished in the midst of beauty. Everybody around you has money. Everybody around you seems to be doing real well. And you could do real well too. All you gotta do is say Caesar is Lord and offer a little pinch of incense and just say, you know, government's God, it can solve our problems. Why you gotta cause problems? Why you gotta cause trouble? And the Smyrnans were known as, as being extremely faithful to Rome. I mean, it was a, it was a saying, you know, the faithfulness of, of Smyrnans meant that they were faithful to Rome. It was all, you know, Caesar 2020. They were just constant worshiping and believing that government is God and they were firm in favor of Rome and had no problem with saying Caesar is Lord. They would say it the loudest. They would give the biggest pinches of, of incense. They believed that government was the, the solution to all their problems. And so we have to beware that we're not so far from that ourselves. And then Jesus comes up and he says to the church, I am the first and the last. I am the almighty. Government is not God. Caesar is not Lord. I am. And I know your tribulation, and I know your poverty, but, but you're rich. And I know this blasphemy that's happening. I know these things. But a pagan government and a false religion are two of the main tools that Satan, the devil, uses to persecute the church. So don't look at those things to save the church. Be careful how much power we give to the government. Our founders, I don't want to get too political, but our founders recognized that the problem with government is people. People is government and government is people. It doesn't matter what kind of government you have, people. People are sinful, therefore checks and balances and all these things to keep sinful people from getting too much power. So what we have done is we're dividing up into sides, and they're not necessarily Christian and unchristian. But what we do is, I'll, when my man gets into, power, gets into power, he needs more power. When your man gets into power, you can give him more power. And so power keeps rising, rising, rising. And guess what Satan's doing? He's got his little manipulation out there, and he's got everybody, yes, give the government more power. Give the government more power. Give the government more power. And, and Satan comes as an angel of light. So don't think it's going to be just like you will recognize evil just by seeing it because it disguises itself. What we have to do is make sure we are worshiping Jesus Christ every step of the way. He is the first. He is the last. He is Pantocrator. He is the Almighty. He is the one who is in the midst of the churches. And the church has to remain faithful to the Spirit of God or we become the false church we become the liberal church who no longer believes the word of God is the word of God, and we start to give power to who? Preacher? The guys that get the largest following on TV or something? 
I don't know. Who, who becomes the authorities that we listen to in all the different areas of life? And what God is telling the church in Smyrna and telling us today is, remember who you are. And I know you're going through problems, but I am with you. And false religion in our country today, too, is, uh, that has entered into not just people who say, well, I don't believe the Bible, but they still call themselves churches. Um, churches that claim to be, you know, in favor of the whole LGBT stuff, in favor of abortion and all these things. It's like, okay, I can spot them. But the hard part is spotting a church that says they believe the Bible, but it's all therapy. It's all about you know, making you feel good, uh, everything is couched in psychological terms and things like this, rather than what's the solution to our problems, and it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, Revelation 2.10, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. So there's purpose. There's this testing. So you have tribulation, and there's these tools of Satan that are running around and that are behind a lot of these problems, and it's for the purpose here of testing. So these hardships aren't God's punishment. They're his means of strengthening and increasing their faith. So what about this 10 days? For 10 days, you will have tribulation. And so everybody looks at the 10 days, and they're like, all right. So one thing you can be sure of, because it's in the book of Revelation, and because it is an apocryphal book where there are symbols and numbers always mean something else, he's not talking about a literal 10 days. So what is it? how do we interpret the 10 days? And if it really is only 10 days, I mean, that's like, why even, it, it won't take long. But it's a, it's a number of completeness, and it's a number of finite numbers, so it ends. Where you see the number 7, what you get is a day of rest that continues. And so the number 7 can be like a complete fullness that continues on. But the number 10 also has the idea of testing. So that you have the 10 plagues of Egypt. But you also have the 10 commandments. But these things... Um, are, they, they have testing and they have judgment involved with them too but it's for it, it's a finite number but there's also something else because we've already been told in Revelation um, by the way it talks to go back to the book of Daniel so look at Daniel chapter 1 verse 8 so Daniel chapter 1 verse, verses 8 through 12 um, it says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him to defile, not to defile himself with this food. And so God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has signed you food and your drink, for why should he see that you are in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. And then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them and he tests them and they do that for 10 days. And at the end, he says, you're actually 10 times better conditioned than everybody else. And so what, everybody, what the world does is say, we need to do the Daniel diet <laughs> so we can be in 10 times better shape. Anything to do with that. The Daniel diet is don't give in to the king's demands when it's telling you to do something that's unbiblical. Smyrna, 10 days you'll be tested. Uh, like Daniel. 
Right. But what it's going to represent is something different. It's going to represent the idea of you're going to remain pure. And at the end of this, you're going to be better off. Do not give in to the king's demands. Don't give in to false government. Don't give in to false religion. And we see this also in 1 Peter and in James. talks about these trials that happen in our lives and that they produce more faith. They produce perseverance. And that's the purpose of these trials. So that whatever happens, the main reason for what the, why this is happening is as a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That as you go through these things and still do not give in to their demands, you are witnessing to the power of faith. And what I will do for you in the midst of this is increase your faith and give you more grace and change you as you go through these problems and these difficulties. And so he says after this in Revelation chapter 10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So some of you are going to be thrown into prison, and some of you are going to die there. Some of you are going to be put to death. But you be faithful. And that meant something to somebody living in Smyrna, because those guys were faithful to Caesar. Those guys in Smyrna, they, they didn't waver. They were in favor of Rome. And he's telling the church, you be faithful to your king. You be faithful to me, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. And this crown of life, it's the word in Greek, it's stephanos, which is different than diadem. The diadem is that fancy big gold crown with all the jewels and everything on it. But this is the victor's crown. Like uh, you'll see, sometimes you see a picture of, like, I guess, little Caesar, the little the pizza box. He's got the, the Caesar's crown, the victor's crown. That's, that's what that crown is. You're the winner. You know, you go to the Olympics, you didn't get the medal. You got this, you know, lettuce leaf thing. It seems like, oh, that. But no, this represented to them. It's like, you won. There's the victor. There's the guy with that, the crown, the Stephanos around his head. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is the crown of life. It's, it's the life is this crown that you're going to have. Now, in Smyrna, there was a thing called the Crown of Smyrna, and it was very famous. So that when you're approaching Smyrna, there's this, these mountains that have these little hilltops. And at the top of all of these hilltops were these opulent buildings, many of them government buildings, and it looked like a crown from the distance. So people were approaching, and they'd look, and they'd see, and they'd talk about, oh, there's the crown of, you know, like if we're going to New York, you say, oh, there's a Statue of Liberty. You know, they were like, there's the Crown of Smyrna. He says, be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. And it's, he knows this church. He knows what they're going through. He knows the area intimately, and he's able to tell them that I will give you the crown of life. But I do want you to go to James at this point. Look at James chapter 1. It's after Hebrews, so you've got to go a little bit into it. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 9. If we remember, too, in Smyrna, I've repeated it enough times, you should remember it. They were rich. They were poor. But he says, but you're rich. And in James chapter 1, beginning of verse 9, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. So what that means is you're saved, you're, uh, you're going to receive the crown of life, but you're lowly, you're poor, you don't have much standing in the world. So what you do is you're like, hey, but I'm, I'm rich. I know I have much. But I'm, I'm rich in heaven. So don't believe the churches that say God wants you to be rich now. 
God wants you all these. No, you know, there's nothing wrong with obtaining wealth. There's nothing wrong with obtaining standing and all these things. But if you're lowly, if where you are is a lowly position, you boast in your standing before God. Now, if you're rich, then how you boast is in your humiliation. So that that's the leveling that takes place. The poor have been exalted. The wealthy have been made humble. Because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. I'm not, I can't trust in my riches, America. You know, one of the things about the, the crown of Smyrna, you're going to get the crown of life, is don't be deceived by the beauty around you. Don't be deceived. Don't desire to be a part of this so much that you can't even go through the tribulation. Don't deceive, be deceived that when you're thrown into prison, you're, you know, your faith, I mean, I can't tell somebody, you know, if you're faced with death, you still have to, you, you know, how dare you not, you, know, you, you can't deny Christ. I mean, I can tell you that. We're not supposed to. But um, in the earlier periods in early church, when there was great persecutions, and some people uh, went through it and came out um, and never denied the faith. And others died having not denied the faith. But there are a lot of people who are like, I can't, no, I'm out. <laughs> what, do you, what do you need me to say? You got it. And they were looked down upon by the church, obviously. And so these other people who came out of these persecutions, they were like super Christians. I mean, they had marks. They, had, they were tortured, and they did not give up the faith. And they were the ones that said to the church, don't you dare exclude these people who gave up and said things because you don't know what it's like. It's only by a supernatural grace of the Holy Spirit that anybody is able to withstand these things. Welcome them back. Welcome them back. For like the flower of grass, even the wealthy will pass away. And in verse 11, the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and the flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, whether he's rich or poor. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And again, as we saw last week, it comes down to love. Do you love God? Do you love Christ? Do you love his word? Do you love Christians? Do you love trying to be more Christ-like? Do we understand when we come to the table that it is his love expressed to us and that we're supposed to go to him in love and therefore express love to one another through the Spirit so that we will receive the crown of life? And then he closes, he who has an ear, let him hear what he says to the churches. The one who conquers... Now, that's the word Nikkei, which is where you get the Nike from. It actually means the victor. So to the one who is victorious, what do you get? You get the victor's crown. The one who is faithful unto death, you get the victor's crown. And you will not be hurt by the second death. And Greek is like you would no not be hurt, which in English means you will be hurt. But in Greek, a double negative means no, no, <laughs> not, absolutely not be hurt by the second death. And so what the second death is... Just a minute. Let's look at Matthew 25, verse 41. Matthew 25, verse 41. Because this doctrine also is being downplayed by false churches. So, Matthew 25, verse 41. Jesus is speaking. 
And he says, this is the, the, the final judgment, the goats and the sheep. And he says to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food and I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the one of the least of these my brothers, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So the punishment is eternal in the same way that life is eternal and then John chapter 5 so Matthew Mark Luke and John John chapter 5 verse 24 Jesus is speaking again and he says John 5:24 Truly truly I say to you whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life he who does not he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. So that's past tense. You've already done that as a believer. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. And so again, Jesus preaching about death and hell. And then finally, Revelation chapter 20, verse 6. He explains a little more what he's talking about. Revelation 20, verse 6. Blessed and holy are the ones who share in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. And in verse 10, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. And there you see, again, government and religion. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So hell is forever. It is not an annihilationism, and it all just ends. And then chapter 21 of Revelation, verses 5 through 8. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down, and for these words are trustworthy and true. For he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. To the one who conquers, the one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, and the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And he's saying to the believers, be faithful unto death, and that second death will by no means touch you. And that's the promise that we have. One of my favorite um, people from church history, maybe all of history, is Polycarp, if you know the story of Polycarp. 
Polycarp was actually the bishop of Smyrna. And he was born in, in um, A.D. 69 and died in A.D. 155. And he, it's most likely he may have even known the Apostle John. Uh, he, he certainly would have received this letter to Smyrna in the book of Revelation at some point and said, you know, he's a messenger of this church. This is going to apply to him. He's like, okay, I've got this letter to encourage me, whatever may happen here in this city. And for a long time, they're persecuting. He was the 12th um, recorded Christian martyr in the New Testament times. And his death is very well documented as historical fact. Um, not just, he's not in the Bible, but he's very well documented. And so for some reason, for a long time, they didn't touch him. They didn't bother him. And then when he's 89 years old, um, they finally send for him to be arrested. And so the Roman soldiers, they go to get him. And when they get there to see him, they're kind of amazed at how old he is. They didn't realize he was, he was so elderly. And they get there and they're like, you know, feeling like we're supposed to go in and rough him up and drag him out. But they felt bad. And he said, hey, is it okay if I pray a little bit before we go? And they said, sure. And he prays for like hours or whatever. And they're just amazed at his prayer. I mean, if you're going to be hauled off before people, I mean, ask to pray and just see how good you are at it. Keep going. I mean, preach the gospel as you're going, but pray, pray, pray. And so then finally they, they, they bring him out and some things happen. But they're pleading with him the whole time. Man, all you do is say is Caesar's Lord. Just a little pinch of incense. All you do, don't go. There's no need to, to be... Put, Go through what you're about to go through. He's like, no, no, they couldn't convince him of it. So they take him to the, the, um, the Colosseum that's outside, and there are people have gathered for this great event, and Polycarp is well known as the leader of this um, anti-government, anti-religious, because um, they, were, um, they worshiped many gods, and so Christians were considered atheists because they didn't worship all these other gods. And so they get Polycarp there, and they pull him up, and you can hear the crowds are all chanting, Polycarp, Polycarp, Polycarp. It's like they finally have Polycarp, and the government's finally decided to go get him. And they're bringing Polycarp in, and they, they have him there, and he stands in front of a local proconsul named Quadratus, and he's trying to convince him just to say, um, Caesar's Lord and offer a bit of incense and at one point he says just say away with the atheists speaking of Christians and so Polycarp looks at all the pagans out there and he says away with the atheists and he's talking about them and proconsul's like really getting frustrated with him and starts yelling at him and fussing at him and he says don't you know that I can have you th that we can have you burned at the stake and he says well, that only bothers you because you know nothing of the flames of hell that last forever for those who go into judgment. The flames that you have will last only for a moment. But, the, but the, the life of God lasts forever, and the flames of hell are forever. And he continues to get more and more angry with him, and he, finally he says, deny Christ, worship Caesar. And he says, 80 and 6 years I have served him, and he has never done me any wrong. How can I now deny my king? And they take him to the stake. He says, don't worry about tying me to the stake. I'll stand here. And they light the flames. They have trouble. So the story, it's hard to know what part of this becomes. You know, it's just amazing. This is an amazing thing that was happening. They have trouble getting the flames to touch him. One of the stories is they, they stabbed him, and blood came out of him and put out the fire. And but, you know, he, he stood there and allowed himself to be burned at the stake. And this is what Revelation was saying. And he had this promise that if you remain faithful even unto death, there's a crown of life that awaits us. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you.
Thank you for your word. Thank you for the crown of life that awaits us. Thank you that we come to your table now and we get to taste life, knowing that we listen to your word, that we participate in that even now. So we thank you and pray that you'll continue to watch over us all the days of our life. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.